Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, coming to you each time around from my North Wales spare room, where I bring you, or I try to bring you anyway, those tales of true crime that you may not be all that familiar with, that you may find horrifying and scarcely believable, but which are all true, and are all sought out from the length and breadth of the UK and Ireland. Doing this is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. I'm joined by my beloved black and white hairy menace, Pixie, the true crime enthusiast cat. And we're completed by yourselves, the wonderful enthusiasts to make the show. It's fantastic as it always is having you joining us today, which I thank you so kindly for doing so. And I do hope that as you have, then the episode finds you and yours all good, all safe and all well. Before we begin then, big thanks go out this week first to Andy and Rachel, the hosts of Picture the Scene podcast, who kindly had myself and Bob, one half of Twisted Britain, on for a bit of a bonus collaboration with them recently, which was tremendous fun to do and I look forward to doing similar again with them in the future. The episode's now out and is one that I hope you'll tune into to have a listen as to what we all discussed and... There was some pure shock and horror there too, I tell you. Thanks also head out to both the new and returning enthusiast Patreon supporters, with shout-outs here for new friends Sarah Nolan, Ain Sweeney, Tamara, Dave Lang, and Mixed Up Dolly Karen, plus Lee Wood, Carrie Newton, Shandell Whitney, and Terry Burke, who have kindly opted to annually support the show. It's so very much appreciated of you all to do so, folks, and stuff has gone out to some of you, of course, although the posties are on mega strike over here right now. They're striking more days than they're actually working, so it may be somewhat delayed getting to you. But whilst you're waiting, you all have the full plethora of bonus enthusiast tales to pass the time for you, from stories as bizarre as The Strange Tale of Hellish Nell, to those as horrific as An Offering to the Angels, there is something for all to be found there in the full series of unreleased bonus episodes. You can, like those I've just mentioned, get to hear these tales I've described and several others for yourselves very reasonably indeed, simply by heading over to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on Patreon, or scratch all of that because I've placed a link in the episode show notes that'll take you right to it, and you can be squared away quicker than Liz Truss is now updating his CV. A new bonus tale is added each month also, and I'll be prepping the one for this time around very, very soon. It may even tie in with the Lost Boys somehow. So, back in the room then, and we find ourselves rapidly approaching the climax of the Lost Boys. If you haven't caught up with the first six parts yet, and as I've said before, some people do say daft things like, is there a part one? Yes, there's a part one. There's two, three, four, five, and six. So if you haven't caught up with the first six parts yet, then I advise that you do catch up before listening here, or else this bit will make as much sense as the mini budget that's just been. But if you have already, then last time around you'll remember we got to properly meet some of those responsible for the horror that the Ark is constructed of, and catch up with how the years following were for them, Robert Oliver, Leslie Bailey, Stephen Barrell, as well as a couple of other names. But that was only some of those ultimately responsible. As I said before, there are so many who are unnamed and uncharged to do with the cases we've looked at, 
It's a real cancer, this network is. That's the best way I can describe it. So I opted to focus on the names we've consistently met so far throughout the tale. We met a few last time then, and heard about the intervening years and how they treated that scum. But we only met a couple of them then. Make no mistakes, does that mean I feel those mentioned in First of the Monsters deserve any leeway whatsoever, or I consider them any lesser monsters? No way, this is evil personified all around that we're talking about for certain. But I saved another couple, probably the couple, for this time around, who I think are just that extra level of beast, one of whom has been described as the most evil person still breathing in Britain. And he's a proper contender for sure. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving descriptions of sexual offences against children that some listeners may find extremely disturbing and or distressing. So please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for Part 7 of The Lost Boys, an episode I've entitled Worst of the Monsters. Of the remaining pair that we shall discuss this time around, we shall begin with Leonard William Gilchrist Smith, known throughout our tale as Lenny Smith, and for the one who should undoubtedly have been in a dock looking at life for his crimes, certainly at the very least relating to Jason and Mark, if the CPS hadn't been such utter twats. We left Smith imprisoned for a 10-year sentence in 1992 for offences relating to the sexual abuse of a young boy in connection with the Brent inquiry that I mentioned a few episodes back. His bleak-looking future, reviled inside prison by the majority of staff and inmates alike, was a culmination of his bleak and already familiar-sounding life up to then too. Born on the 23rd of August 1954 in Montgomeryshire in Wales and raised solely for a time by his mother Eileen as his father was unlisted on his birth certificate, Smith had a turbulent upbringing, performing poorly in his schooling and never having the kind of family stability that every child should, although he was to adapt and retain the name Gilchrist after the surname of one of the boyfriends his mother had had that had lasted longer than some others. Like Bailey before him, Smith spent periods of time in care in his formative years, also like Bailey being sexually abused whilst here, but by the time he was 14 and had left education with nothing in 1968, Smith was an already active and unusually somewhat enthusiastic rent boy. His youthful looks slight stature and short height making him popular with this vocation. He would regularly abscond from the various children's homes he was placed in around the country and support himself through cash for sex, being involved over time in the gay scenes of Oxford and Birmingham. He also drifted into petty crime at this time and by age 21 in 1975 had accumulated convictions for burglary, theft and attempting to obtain goods by deception. Sometime in 1975, Smith moved permanently from Wales and set himself up as a rent boy in London, where he operated around the areas of Victoria Station, where he first met one Robert Oliver and Piccadilly, both known as popular 
meat racks as they were described for clients to solicit underage sex. However, aside from earning money here, Smith was for four years until 1979, barring a year's imprisonment that he received in 1977 for offences of indecency. He was kept for four years at an address on Eaton Place in London's Belgravia by a man named Rodham Twiss, who was, I quote, the son of a man who held a prestigious and historic parliamentary post, meeting him first as a client who enjoyed being tied up and whipped. Twiss's father, Admiral Sir Frank Rodham Twiss, held at the time the position of Gentleman Usher of the Black Rod in the UK Parliament, the figurehead principally responsible for controlling access to and maintaining order within the House of Lords and its precincts as well as for ceremonial events within those precincts, most notably for their part in the ceremonies surrounding the state opening of Parliament and the speech from the throne. Why exactly the relationship or arrangement or whatever you want to call it, whatever it was with Twiss, came to an end is unknown, but Smith left here in 1979 and moved down to South End to an address in Westcliff for a time, a house in San Remo Parade and worked as an amusement arcade assistant for an elderly homosexual named Jack Parsons, who was described as Smith's sugar daddy, and whom Smith referred to as his granddad. Now, due to Smith's looks and his small stature, as I've said, he lasted as a rent boy a lot longer than most would, but it's likely that around this time that he spent here, he became more of a pimp, for the Westcliff Amusement Arcade was really a cover for drug dealing, and the procurement and prostitution of young boys. Some boys he kept exclusively for himself for a while, professing love for them, getting the names tattooed on his body, and showering them with gifts and clothing. Well, that is of course if you can call Smith's preference for rough, repeated diazepam fueled sex, sometimes up to six times in succession, complete with lots of hair pulling and slapping, and an overall thorough enjoyment of inflicting sadistic pain. If you can call that love, I'd call it abuse personally. But eventually, he tired of each boy and simply farmed them off to others, soon replacing them. In the early 1980s, following a theft conviction in June of that year, in June 1980, Smith moved from Westcliff and based himself for a brief time in Birmingham but soon found himself serving a year in prison there after being convicted for burglary, theft and criminal damage offences. Upon his release from this sentence, he returned to London, becoming the tenant of number 70 Templemead House on the Kingsmead Estate in Hackney. Here, as well as going back to the meat racks of Victoria Station and Piccadilly, but this time overseeing and running boys as a pimp, he regularly performed as a drag artist at Hackney's Royal Oak Pub, describing himself as Mavis, the sex queen of Hackney, and where he was recalled for his exceptional and remarkable makeup skills. In 1984, just after he'd met one Leslie Bailey and become his on-off lover, Smith had even married a Bolivian student named Rena Paracolo at Hackney Registry Office but only for having been paid £500 to do so, simply so Rena could secure a residency in the UK 
as a married woman. Even though he was at the time still the tenant on number 70 Templemead House, he'd given his address at the ceremony as being number 36 Ashmead House, which was of course the home of Uncle Donald Smith, who was the then tenant, and which Smith also shared at the time with one Robert Oliver, who himself at the time was the lover of Sidney Cook, and who also had sexual relationships with both Smiths and Bailey. Just imagine Love Island in a scummy flat, one big sordid bloody mess indeed. It was also, of course, the flat where Barry Lewis had been horrifically abused in a year later, and where Jason Swift was ultimately to meet his death. Now, as I explained in the Brent Connection episode, in November 1985, police had raided 70 Templemead on Kingsmead Estate after an anonymous tip-off that a 13-year-old boy was being abused there by Robert Oliver and Lenny Smith, though police failed to find him as the boy was being hidden behind curtains. The boy was first introduced to Lenny Smith by another of the gang who was never to face charges, Walter Ballantyne, who had himself first picked up the boy in September 1985, and Smith, the gang's acting pimp, had used him simply as another of the boys he was regularly supplying to paedophiles at the cost of £5 per child. So close to home had this visit been for Smith, however, that reportedly he'd immediately afterwards swallowed a handful of pills, claiming very melodramatically that he wanted to die and making an impromptu will in which he left everything to Robert Oliver. However, Oliver took him immediately to Hackney Hospital, where Smith's stomach was pumped and his life saved, and the following day, against medical advice, he'd signed himself out and disappeared back down to his old stomping ground of South End. But when the same 13-year-old boy was later found by police in February 1986, and two of the first names he gave to them were Sidney Cook and Lenny Smith, both were arrested and charged in connection with the Dirty Dozen offences, remanded to prison, and in June of the following year, Smith received a 30-month sentence for sexual offences against the child. This, as I told you, is when detectives interviewed him in prison in connection with the murder of Jason Swift, and he'd refused to talk to them. Now, they'd not gone there blindly and plucked him out as a suspect at random. They knew he was a close associate of the others that by then Robert Oliver had mentioned. And though Smith had always denied knowing Jason, police had uncovered some eight witnesses who said differently. Another pimp who worked with Smith, Derek Crabb, specifically told police later that they'd run Jason as a rent boy at Victoria in the period he was missing in 1985. Smith had Jason's name in his diary, and he'd been seen there at the flat several times, including playing with his beloved Monopoly game and listening to records, even taking drugs there, it was claimed. No less than six people Smith had shared a cell at times with were also to later tell detectives that he'd mentioned Jason several times to them, even telling one, callously, he wasn't rent boy material really. He only did it for a meal ticket and a roof over his head. Poor, poor boy, eh? Police were also told how Smith would regularly drug boys with diazepam for his nefarious purposes, 
large quantities of the drug that was found in Jason's body at post-mortem. And to cap it off, a relative of Leslie Bailey's, perhaps the never-identified Oddbod, or perhaps another, it was certainly one who was a convicted sex offender anyway, later came forward to say that on the night Jason Swift had died, he saw Cook and Lenny Smith putting a rolled-up carpet in the back of Cook's Jaguar. Smith later told him in a pub that it was Jason's body he'd seen. Spidey sense is off the charts there already, isn't it? So, when he was released from Wandsworth Prison on the 23rd of October 1987, detectives were waiting and arrested Smith outside the prison gates, charging him the following day with the murder of Jason Swift. Immediately remanded into custody again, Smith remained in custody until he was released at the committal stages in February 1988 when charges against him were dropped, as we've heard. Speaking to the Sunday Mirror newspaper, who'd confronted Smith following charges being dropped, and after the other four were sentenced, Smith had the gall to complain of his life of hell, saying, I quote, I have to sneak in and out, terrified that someone will spot me and beat me again. I didn't ask to be put here, and I had no idea that Jason's mother lived so near. Now, I have to leave my flat before dawn and come home after roaming the streets when it's dark so I won't be recognised. My life is hell, all because people blame me for introducing Jason to his killers. I swear I never met Jason and I beg his parents to believe me. I wasn't at that awful orgy where he died. It wasn't me who organised the orgy, I just knew one or two of the blokes involved. I was interviewed by the cops because someone in Wormwood Scrubs told a pack of lies. Just because I shared a flat with Rob, that doesn't mean I had anything to do with Jason. No one could pin anything on me. I'd heard of Jason because people spoke of him being a rent boy around Hackney, but I never got involved. What happened to him was sick. There were a sick bunch of blokes, and it's pathetic that I was mentioned as the one who set everything up. Doesn't your heart bleed, eh? Referring to Cook, Smith added, I know he will die in prison for Jason's death, but I'm convinced he can unlock the door to other murders. I had sex with him and I know he's a sadistic lover who has a kink for very young boys. He would drive up streets and get turned on by children as young as eight playing in the roads. He worked in fairs up and down the country and picked up youngsters for sex. I even worked on a fairground with him and watched him at work. I like kids, but there's nothing funny going on. I would never harm them. I admitted sex assault with Leslie, but now I'm a bit wiser, and I would get myself a good solicitor who could help me get off. Yes, he actually said all of this straight-faced. I mean, can you believe this individual, or what? Smith remained at large then as I said, exposed by the Daily Mirror and also getting hiding just after his cronies were convicted of Jason's rape and manslaughter. But the Operation Orchid team kept him under close surveillance because his name cropped up more than any other through Bailey's accounts. And on the 2nd of May 1990, he was arrested at a public toilet where he'd just indecently assaulted a child. He was ultimately convicted of this offence 
for which he later received a three-year prison sentence. Now, as we've heard in previous episodes, though the CPS deemed it best not to charge Smith in connection with Barry, or even Mark Tilsley, though he'd been mentioned in a detailed account as the one who drugged and strangled Mark, it was while Smith was serving this three-year sentence that he was interviewed with regards to other offences that had recently come to light from way back in 1984 in Hackney involving a then six-year-old boy, who now 13 had confessed his past abuse to the head teacher of his boarding school and had named Lenny Smith as being the one responsible. Thus, on the day Smith was released in May 1991, he was immediately re-arrested and charged with offences in relation to this boy and remanded straight back in custody until his trial. At his trial, which took place at the Old Bailey in December 1992, the court heard how back in 1984, then 30-year-old Smith had offered to babysit for a neighbour's six-year-old son, referred to only as Nicky, when the boy's mother and sister had been taken into hospital, having the boy staying at his flat. Whilst he stayed there, Smith started getting into bed with the boy and then sexually abused him, the court heard, whilst because of his good Samaritan routine, he became a close friend of the family when the mother and sister returned from hospital. Like one of the family, the mother later referred to Smith as, and allowed him access to her children. Smith repaid this by buying the boy sweets and gifts, and telling him that he loved him, but also repeatedly raping and abusing the boy over an undisclosed period, frightening him into silence by telling him that he would kill his sister if he ever disclosed a word of the abuse. One evening, the perverted Smith even took the boy by taxi to a West End gay club that he was well known at, the boy later describing to a court via a video link-up. When I came out of the toilet, there were two people having sex. I thought it was a man and a woman, but when I asked Lenny, he said it was two blokes. And this is the bloke that the CPS deemed not even to attempt to prosecute for murder. Yes, it boggles the bloody mind, doesn't it? Sickening. On the 9th of December 1992, Smith was convicted and jailed for the sickening sex attacks on the boy. Sentencing Smith, presiding Mr Justice Mantle, said, I don't care about your sexual inclinations. You can possibly help them, you possibly can't. What you can help is what you do about it. What you did to this little boy was wicked. He was in your care and you abused him. You've done him lasting damage and he may never recover. Smith showed no emotion as he was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment for buggery, one year for gross indecency and five years for indecent assault, sentences to run concurrently. Saying nothing, Smith gave a middle finger gesture to orchid detectives present in court as he was led away to begin his sentence. Following the verdict, an Operation Orchid officer said, We're delighted he's been jailed for 10 years, but we wanted him charged with murder. Detective Superintendent Mick Short echoed this, saying, Lenny Smith is a danger to all young boys. He is truly evil. He was re-arrested trying to pick up a young boy in a toilet. 
at least nine young boys were drugged and abused by up to ten men in orgies at that East London flat. There has to be the possibility that they killed that many. Indeed, the boy Nicky was lucky to be alive, for if Smith had not been known to Nicky's family, he would very possibly have joined the likes of Mark, Barry and Jason. Only the day after he was sent down for ten years, the Daily Mirror banned headline above a picture of an underwear-clad Smith taken a couple of years before when the Mirror reporters had confronted him and an article which detailed his imprisonment read, Now try him for murder. Point of note, actually, in the late 1990s, a television investigative journalism series, Dispatches, featured a documentary on Smith. There is a link to it in the episode show notes and which features an interview with the mother of Nicky. Not quite hard-hitting it is to watch. It is interesting nonetheless. Prison wasn't the kindest to Smith, for though he was housed on Rule 43, he was still despised by the majority of staff and other prisoners alike. He was attacked several times over the years, also reportedly suffered a nervous breakdown, and discovered that he was HIV positive. Yet, by having served less than seven years, in 1999, then 44-year-old Smith was looking at early release. He'd also reportedly begun identifying as female whilst the serving prisoner, and had even wanted a sex change before he re-entered society, and all at the taxpayer's expense. Now, I found a wonderful editorial quote from a newspaper whilst I was researching this, that supported Smith's reported request at the taxpayer's expense wholeheartedly. For the operation, yes, but for the anaesthetic for it, no way. Too bloody right, eh? Now, Smith wasn't to get his operation. Most considered it a mere gesture to try and convince that he was a reformed character and less of a threat, which, of course, he wasn't. Children were still his predilection. Before his release, Smith had even told the former cellmate, The first thing I do when I get out is I'm lining myself up with a lovely little chicken, but I shall cover my tracks this time. And sorry Scotland, but it was reported that Smith had told prison officers in Wakefield Prison that he would have liked to move there, him only too aware that no local authority in England or Wales would be prepared to give him a home and having befriended a number of Scots inmates whilst in Wakefield and other prisons. Of course, it had nothing whatsoever at all to do with the fact that Scottish police forces would have had no official power to monitor him, for sex offenders are forced to undergo supervision only if they were convicted post-1992. Smith was convicted that very year. Police forces in Scotland were put on alert then after receiving information about Smith's intentions and the National Criminal Intelligence Service circulated information about Smith throughout Scotland. One senior Scottish detective said at the time, Intelligence reports suggest he could try to relocate in Scotland where he would appear to have contacts. We can't stop him coming here but obviously every effort will be made to keep an eye on his movements. Former Police Chief Superintendent Roger Stoodley said at the time, 
He is a danger to all young boys and is truly evil. He will always try and offend again. Wherever he goes, children will die. He doesn't deserve to have any taste of freedom whatsoever. However, it was not to Scotland Smith went when he was released from Wakefield Prison on the 18th of June 1999, smuggled out of the jail a day early, but instead into the protective custody of the Metropolitan Police and probation workers, to a secret location in London, having been told a threat on his life would almost certainly be made if he moved freely on his own once he was freed. Smith, like as I had described Oliver was in the previous episode, was held in a London police station for a month, but had agreed to be the first resident of a purpose-built flat complex for freed sex offenders within the grounds of Nottingham Prison on Perry Road, which at the time was nearing completion, and which had caused controversy ever since plans for it were unveiled. It had seen protests and demonstrations galore as it was being built, with hundreds of protesters bearing placards and banners depicting pictures of children underneath the caption, Keep Me Safe. More than 80 children had been removed from nearby schools over the summer holidays by worried parents, concerned for their safety with such undesirable residents able to roam around the area, and three men, Craig Abbott, Mark and Sean Britton, were even arrested and charged with trespassing offences after scaling a fence in protest at the creation of the unit. However, it diminished nothing for the support of protesters, amongst them Sid Swift, who had joined in with the protests and who said, following the men's arrest, I wanted to show solidarity with these people because I think they're doing a good job. Someone has got to show this government that we're not going to let our kids get hurt. It's the kids' safety that must come first, not paedophiles. It's a scandal that they've been arrested for wanting to protect their children while these men go free. They'll be living the life of Riley in these bedsits. It hurts me every time I hear their names. Jason's father, and how personal must that have been to him, hits the nail right on the head there indeed, doesn't he? It just seems to be yet another instance and there seems to have been many throughout this tale, of the system and the powers that be letting down the boys and their families. Absolutely disgraceful. So, whilst he was awaiting this unit being completed, Smith was watched round the clock by police. A prison spokesperson said, following his release, The prison service cannot detain a prisoner beyond this specified release date. It is illegal to hold someone who is legally entitled to their freedom. Okay then, playing that game, why not just turf them out anywhere on their specified release date if it's so bloody important, but let people know publicly, immediately, what danger is in their midst and where they are. Because he'd opted for this unit, however, and agreeing to be released into the custody of the police, Smith had had to sign away the right of freedom that would allow him to live wherever he wanted and live under restriction, as I described when talking about Robert Oliver last time, including the 24 hours notice required before venturing out so proper supervision could be arranged. Now, it's unclear how long Smith spent at this unit, some accounts have it at 5 years plus, but he'd certainly moved from here by June 2005, however 
and he'd actually come up to my neck of the woods. When that month, it was reported that furious parents living in Plas Maddock in Wrexham, an area four or five miles outside the city centre, were protesting against Smith being a resident of the Plasa Wern hostel there, and he'd soon been moved on. I know the Plas Maddock area well, and residents of the large housing estate there, which is known in town as Plas Vegas, or Plastic Maggot, Plastic Magic, whatever, They've often been seen protesting about residents of the Bale Hostel, and specifically, the potential danger to their children on their doorstep. In fact, the strongest I can remember it being was when the hostel briefly housed one of James Bulger's killers. People don't forget, do they? There are conflicting reports as to where Smith went from here, but it was most likely to Hampshire, where in June 2006, it was reported that months earlier, on the 22nd of February 2006, Smith had died of AIDS at Fieldgate Nursing Home in the village of Horndean, taking to the grave with him the terrible secret of just how many children he had abused and murdered. But he would never have talked anyway. Whenever he was asked about Mark or Jason, he'd always replied, no comment to everything. Roger Stoodley recalled years later. That's all he would say, with a very straight face. He was very calm and very cunning. I've never met anyone so completely devoid of compassion. Paedophile expert Paul Roffey said, There's no doubt in anyone's mind that Smith must have been guilty of more crimes than the one case he was convicted for. We've seen research from one clinic which monitored men found guilty of child sex abuse offences. They found that once the men relaxed and began talking about their abuse, they opened up and spoke of other offences they'd committed. Typically, this was around 10 times higher than the crimes for which they were convicted. So, how many youngsters Smith abused, and possibly murdered, will never be known but with his standing as such a key character in the interlinking sordid world we've heard described, the amount of abused children is likely to run into the hundreds, if not the thousands. When one such ring was exposed in the 1990s, the Shoebury sex ring, that's a story for perhaps another time, several witnesses, complainants in the case, came forward to say that one of the leaders of the ring, an individual named Brian Tanner, who was known as Chicken Master for the amount of boys he would procure, and who died the same year as Smith, would often threaten children if they were not compliant with the perverse demands. If you keep this up, I'll take you to Lenny Smith. Now, if this was a threat enough to make any child compliant to whatever vile demands out of fear, and these threats, according to one witness, began in the mid-1970s, who knows exactly what depravity and outrage Smith is responsible for, previous to that that we know of. Yeah, not a place on this earth for a monster such as that, and I hope in his last days, I hope actually throughout all his prison time and everything, I hope he suffered as greatly as the many children whose lives he blighted. I've saved the account of what is most widely considered the worst individual concerned here for last though. 
an individual who's been described, as I said, as the most evil person still breathing in Britain. Hissing Sid himself. Born on the 18th of April 1927 in Stroud in Gloucestershire, the youngest of two children, Sidney Charles Cook never was to know his father and spent his early years living in a small two-bedroom farm cottage with his mother Elizabeth, who was a farmhand, his older brother, his grandparents and his uncle and aunt. From the age of six, Cook claims to have been sexually abused by his uncle, but perversely, and perhaps attempting to explain away his later actions, he claims to have enjoyed the abuse, which carried on regularly until Cook left his grandparents' cottage at age 12. Cook left school in 1941 and worked on several farms for four years, before joining the army on the 16th of August 1945, serving first with the Royal Engineers and later the Royal Artillery. He was to spend seven years in the forces before being discharged in 1952 as an unsatisfactory soldier, after serving several periods of detention for being AWOL. It was following his discharge that Cook began working in the main vocation he would retain until his imprisonment in 1989, working on fairs, which he travelled the country extensively with. He met and married his wife, Ivy, in 1955, but they later separated and completely lost touch, to the extent that Cook didn't even know that she years later had divorced him. Though he was a habitual petty criminal and had several convictions for dishonesty and theft, cementing his commonly described aura of being sneaky and untrustworthy, snake-like is a word that pops up often when describing Cook, hence the nickname Hissing Sid. Cook's only conviction for a sexual offence until he was convicted of the manslaughter of Jason Swift came on the 8th of April 1961, where he was fined £20 for indecent assault after sitting next to a young boy in a cinema, placing a raincoat over their laps and touching the boy indecently. This must have resolved Cook, who by this time had long abandoned normal basic routines such as washing and even cleaning his clothes, to not get caught again for this, and over the next two decades he continued in this vein, the fairground being the hunting grounds for such a predator. He would tour the country with whichever fair or circus he was working with, a familiar figure in his filthy suit and trilby hat enticing eager young boys with his child-sized version of a test your strength and ring the bell machine, or working on the waltzes or the dodgums, offering sweets and free rides to whichever boy caught his eye. Basing himself mainly in Hackney when not touring with the fair, Cook became heavily involved with an overlapping network of like-minded monsters, and even began supplying boys to various individuals and high-profile figures politicians, the legal profession, even members of the clergy. Boys that undoubtedly he had abused himself first, an aggressive homosexual who enjoyed the corruption of the young and who would boast of his physical strength and fitness as well as his sexual stamina. By the 1970s, he'd found himself the individual who would become his deadly partner, Lenny Smith, who was an eager pupil of Cook's and who used his charm to procure boys, 
with Cook making the arrangements for the locations and transport of them. The gang had expanded by the 1980s to include Robert Oliver, Stephen Barrell, Leslie Bailey, Donald Smith, to name just some of them. As I said, so wide-reaching and interlinked was this network that it's impossible to quantify just how many members there were and where one gang stops for another to start. Take it as pretty much gospel though, that Cook knew all and was known by all of them. The 1980s brings us also to the three known murders that Cook was involved with, which led to his eventual imprisonment in 1989 for the manslaughter of Jason Swift. Now, I also told you that Cook had successfully appealed his sentence following Leslie Bailey's confessions and had gotten it reduced to one of 16 years. 16 years is still a long time for such a reviled figure to spend imprisoned, however, and over the years, I'm sure you'll be pleased to know that Cook was attacked several times in various prisons that he served time in, suffering several concussions, receiving a broken jaw on one occasion, whilst another time narrowly avoided having his jugular vein severed following a bladed attack as he stood in the lunch queue at Albany Prison. Kept on Rule 43 constantly, as all this lot are, Cook passed his prison time, perversely I thought, by making soft toys for disabled children, for which in the 1990s he'd even won a prison award for. By 1997, some eight years into his sentence, he'd been moved back to Wandsworth Prison, a revered figure to other paedophiles in Pervert Palace, for the extent of his depravity and the lengths he would describe that he was prepared to go to ensnare his victims. Metropolitan Police Officer Detective Constable Tina Burney said, years later, he's been put on a pedestal because he killed all of those kids. It was a fantasy to all those paedophiles to go that bit further. How much of a shower would you need each night being around something as despicable as that, eh? I doesn't even bear thinking about. And this, Cook, was an individual who was then being prepared for his release. Oh yes, because Cook had been sentenced before the 1991 Criminal Justice Act came in, he automatically became eligible for parole after serving two-thirds of his sentence, which still doesn't mathematically add up to me like, but there you go, and would also be unsupervised following his release too. These issues had been addressed following an implementation of the Act. For people sentenced after that date, parole was no longer automatic on completion of two-thirds of the sentence, and he would have been supervised by a parole officer, but it was just yet another way that Cook cheated the law here. Unusually though, in the run-up to his release, scheduled for April 1998, Cook had been deemed unsuitable for any day release or weekend leave, which is normally granted to ease a returning prisoner back into society. In preparation for his release then, Cook had changed his name to Sidney Lomas, had had a new haircut and had grown a beard. Wanting to look his best for the person he reportedly wanted to marry when released, his fellow homosexual paedophile, Robert Oliver. He also reportedly told prison officers, I've spent nine years fighting the system. The Home Office wanted to declare me insane so they could send me to a mental hospital when I left prison. 
but I told them that they were mad, trying to prove that I'm mad after nine years of perfect behaviour. They weren't going to get away with that. The police can't stop me from going anywhere because I've served my time. I'm a free man. Basically, I can go where I like with whoever I like. I'm going to vanish. I have no intention of being hounded around the country. I have friends outside who'll help me disappear. Nobody will find me. Boggles the mind, doesn't it? Hearing rumours that Cook was in fact planning a move back down to a seaside town he had great affiliation with, South End, upon his release. On the 24th of March 1998, Detective Superintendent David Bright and Detective Chief Inspector Dick Madden, who had worked on Operation Stranger, visited Cook unannounced in Wandsworth Prison to find out where Cook did intend to relocate to and for Dick Madden to get a good look at him in case it was to South End. By David Bright's account in his book, Catching Monsters, which a very recommended, fascinating read that's been unbelievably helpful in creating the arc, the then 71-year-old cook swaggered into the meeting room, cheerfully said, Hello, Mr. Bright, and then started shadowboxing him and showing off doing squats and press-ups, totally unfazed by his presence. Without prompting, Cook intimated indeed that he would be heading down to South End, saying to the officers with a smile, I'll soon be coming down your way. He was introduced then to Detective Chief Inspector Madden by Detective Superintendent Bright, and was told, This officer deals only with child abuse in Essex, and he now knows you. Following this, and though David Bright was hopeful of engineering the conversation around to talk about other missing children, namely Mark Tildesley and the location of Mark's burial site, from Cook's arrogant fuck you stance, the officers knew they would get nothing in the way of information from him. The following month, and following him agreeing to wear an electronic tag, he couldn't have been forced to wear one without his consent due to the same rules that granted him automatic parole qualification and non-supervision, despite even though probation officers considered him dangerous and predatory, and despite Cook himself admitting that he may re-offend, on Saturday the 4th of April 1998, Cook was moved from Wandsworth Prison to stay in cells at Lehman Street in Stepney, used at the time as a base for traffic wardens, until a move to a secret permanent location could be finalised. He'd been whisked away from Wandsworth Prison under cover of darkness late on the Saturday night, two days earlier than anticipated, to avoid any possible confrontation with protesters ahead of a vigil outside the prison to protest at his release and to remember victims of paedophiles. Alongside several groups around the country that lit candles for Orchid's children, the candlelit vigil did indeed take place outside Wandsworth that Monday, a peaceful protest to highlight demands for new laws to prevent paedophiles like Cook from being released, but that, as I said, was as much a remembrance service for young murder victims, with photographs of Jason, Barry and Mark amongst several other youngsters that were prominently displayed on banners. Among the protesters were Jason's mother Joan and her friend Dee Warner, who said, Joan and I are absolutely sure that Cook will offend again. 
she just cannot believe that this animal is coming out. Others present included the now sadly passed on Winnie Johnson, the mother of still sadly missing Moore's murder victim Keith Bennett, who said, The government are doing nothing, and have done nothing in the 34 years since Keith was killed. And Lynn Costello, a representative of the group Mothers Against Murder and Aggression, echoing, The way his case has been handled is a disgrace, the biggest cock-up in the history of our legal system. Kate Lowes, meanwhile, who runs the group Speak, Stop Paedophiles Exploiting and Abusing Kids, appealed, Surely the time has come when the inadequate laws governing this group are tempered to common sense. By releasing this evil monster, the government are playing roulette with another child's life. The children that were murdered will never walk free and realise their potential, and their families serve a life sentence with no chance of appeal or reprieve. Why should Cook get any less? Indeed, yes. What an absolute disgrace letting this filth out. In the days following Cook's release, claiming they were acting in the public interest by warning communities, and especially parents of young children, of Cook's whereabouts, both the Sun and the Mirror newspapers carried appeals to readers to ring them with any sightings of him. The Sun had published a full-page picture of Cook on the Saturday under the headline New Face of the Beast, warning that he could turn up in any community and adding, If you spot him, ring our hotline so you can expose his whereabouts. The Monday's Mirror published a similar appeal but accompanied it with a double-page spread in which Jason's brother, Steve Nurcombe, described his anger, saying, I'd like to break every bone in Cook's body. You probably have to get in line, mate. And chillingly, retired Detective Superintendent Roger Studley had added, He'll kill again. He's certain to attack again. It's in his nature. The police are putting a lot of effort into monitoring his movements but the money will run out, and as soon as Cook isn't watched, he'll offend. He's a very evil, controlling person. I am appalled and frightened by his release. Now so were many other people, and they let their feelings known. A bedsheet saying, Paedophile Protector, was placed over the East London Layman Street Police Station sign, as it was soon discovered Cook was being held there, whilst hundreds of people gathered outside, holding placards saying things such as Beep your horn, pervert Sidney Cook is in here. Cook spent two weeks at Layman Street before on the 18th of April being moved to secure custody in the Avon and Somerset area, with newspapers reporting that he was being held at Yeovil Police Station ahead of an expected move later that week to Bridgestock Road Bail Hostel in Bristol, a halfway house just yards from Cabot Primary School and St Barnabas Primary School. Two days later, after worried parents in Yeovil distributed posters which showed Cook, together with the messages, Don't let your child be his next victim, and Cook R.I.P. Get him out of town, complete with a target drawn on his head. Up to 300 concerned residents protested outside Yeovil Police Station, hours after angry residents had held a meeting with police and community leaders in Bristol after reports that Cook would be transferred to the bail hostel in the St Paul's area of the city. 
One woman who lived in the same road as the hostel, a mother of five, said, It seems to me that he's been protected more than us. My children have had nightmares ever since this news broke. Spontaneous demonstrations, largely peaceful, also took place in Bridgewater and Minehead, but a protest outside Broadbury Road Police Station in Bristol on the Thursday night turned into a riot when it was rumoured that Cook was inside. The trouble began after a woman rang the local press claiming to have seen a police car enter the station with an elderly prisoner inside, and more than 40 police officers were hurt and 12 people arrested after petrol bombs and bricks were thrown at police as they faced more than 500 angry protesters who had convened there following this news. Officers dressed in riot gear with the help of a police helicopter eventually managed to bring the situation under control, but this was far from being the only ugly scenes, public revulsion causing innocent people to be caught up in the confusion. Two examples being a man named Derek Jackson, who was almost hit by a brick that came flying through his window after being mistaken for Cook at an address in Shepton Mallet in Somerset, whilst another man in Manchester was intimidated and assaulted due to his close physical resemblance to Cook. A senior police officer, Detective Superintendent Ed Williams, said, At the moment, the behaviour of the public is pretty immature. If they carry on with their hysterical reaction, all they're going to do is make the job of the police more difficult. They're going to create more hostility against paedophiles and drive them together. They've got to behave more responsibly. We've got ourselves into a catch-22 situation where the public want to know when paedophiles move into their area, but when they do know, they move into vigilante mode. A BBC Panorama documentary as I said, the link to which is in the episode show notes, aired in the days after Cook was released, and which showed some of those protesting, a clip from which is as follows. Tell us where he is! Yeovil, Somerset. Public fear has turned to anger. A child sex killer, Sidney Cook, has been released from prison. These parents believe he's in a police cell in their town. I can confirm that Sidney Cook is in custody in the Avon and Somerset police area. A senior police officer is regularly visiting the man they fear. He spends a lot of time watching television. He reads the papers. He cleans his accommodation. He sends out for meals. Uh, he has his own money. And he generally busies himself living under supervision in secure accommodation. What Sidney Cook did with his friends is every parent's nightmare, and the children share the adult's fear. We were scared because he can pinch people and kill people. There's a, a horrible man going around being horrible to little children. If I go to school when he comes up to me, I just don't want him to hurt me. Now what you've just heard, the children speaking, were part of that protest. And the little boy heard last there, if you watch it, he even starts crying. So frightened was he of the monster in their midst. Have a look at the documentary. It makes for very powerful viewing, I thought.
Cook eventually lived, at his own request, in a converted suite of three cells at Yeovil Police Station that had been kitted out like a bedsit. Although his outdoor exercise periods had been cancelled because he'd tried to communicate with another younger offender. He painted his cell blue, and the Home Office provided him with a TV, a washing machine for him to do his own laundry, a microwave, and a small two-ring cooker, with him also kept under constant watch by a team of minders, and visited only by representatives from social services and the Salvation Army. Cook also gave his minders a daily shopping list of food, which he cooked for himself on his two-ring stove, as well as a daily video rental and tobacco request, as if he considered the staff to be his own personal servants. The Mirror newspaper revealed that Cook even expected staff looking after him to pick up his weekly pension, he would try and play cribbage or cards with them, and attempting to personalise with them, he would in one breath say idly to them about how he one day planned to buy a camper van and a bouncy castle, and in the next ask them about their partners and children as if you're going to talk about your kids with Sidney Cook-like. But, this life of Riley was soon to change. Also in the episode show notes is a link to an investigative journalism series called Dispatches that aired an episode on Sidney Cook on Channel 4 in the UK on the 29th of October 1998. There are actually links to a few documentaries in the references section, including one of the same show, as I mentioned before, that concerned Lenny Smith, which had aired shortly before the Cook one, and each, although containing disturbing references, make for interesting viewing, and have been invaluable whilst writing the arc. Now the episode on Cook didn't reinvestigate the crimes that he'd been named in, but did highlight the strength of the evidence that the CPS had deemed not enough to have him in the dock for the murder of Mark Tildesley, as well as introducing new witnesses who had worked with Cook previously on the fairs, and who could now place him as working at the Walworth Festival Fair in Walworth Park, which was less than a mile away from where, and only the day before, Barry Lewis went missing in 1985. The show also detailed some of the other lives Cook had ruined, including one victim of Cook's, his face distorted and his identity known only as Terry, who was still so traumatised from his rape 13 years later that he could only speak through his sister, and the details of two other men the police believed when they alleged that Cook had assaulted them too years before. Because both were vulnerable adults and had learning difficulties, meaning they would have made poor witnesses in court. No charges had been raised against Cook, however, which again doesn't seem right at all, does it? Several years later, one of them was still so traumatised when discussing the abuse that he could only do so whilst holding a cuddly toy over his face for protection. Heartbreaking that, isn't it? The stuff of nightmares indeed. Now the programme, somewhat in the form of Crime Watch, carried a free phone number with it inviting anyone who knew Cook in the decades before, more specifically, anybody who had been abused by him, to call in and speak to officers from Thames Valley Police. It prompted some 500 callers to the studio giving information, with several further victims coming forth, 
but one particular call stood out above others. The dispatches program was seen by a man who'd been a friend of a family Cook had lodged with periodically in the 1970s up in Cumbria. A dysfunctional, large family with a father absent, Cook had conned the mother into thinking he was a law-abiding good role model and had in fact abused two of her children horrifically over almost a decade. The man who saw the program had remained in touch with one of the woman's sons and told him about the program which as a result meant that for the first time in years, the two brothers had opened up about their abuse and their accounts were passed on to Thames Valley Police. With this and other information received as a result of the programme that opened several other investigations concerning alleged past sexual offences by Cook, on the 26th of January 1999, 71-year-old Cook was arrested at Yeovil Police Station by Thames Valley detectives from a team led by Detective Superintendent Trevor Davis, and over the course of three days, in a pre-decided tactic, Cook was interviewed at length by a team including a female officer, Detective Constables Peter Walters and Rose Heaton. Rose was later to describe the three days the team spent interviewing Cook about the offences like, I quote, three days in hell with a monster. She even makes the claim that she threw each item of clothing she'd worn to each session away after completion of the interviews. Dramatic sound in that, but I can't honestly say that I wouldn't do the same thing, would you? Three days after his arrest, Cook was charged at Reading Police Station with serious sexual offences between 1972 and 1981, including rape, buggery and indecent assault, the charges understood to relate to a total of eight alleged victims, and the following day appeared before Newbury magistrates. Bearded Cook, dressed in a grubby grey jacket, sweatshirt and dark trousers, appeared in court at the brief hearing flanked by eight police officers, each armed with the unusual measure of CS spray, and spoke only once in a faint West Country accent to give his name and birth date. He then stood impassive as the charges he faced were read out, which read as follows. Three counts of indecent assault against a boy aged 11 to 13 years old in Battersea, South London, Twyford in Berkshire and Canterbury in Kent between 1972 and 1976, and a further charge of buggery of the same boy in Washington, Tyne and Weir, sometime between June 1978 and January 1980. He was further charged with four counts of buggery of an underage boy and two counts of indecently assaulting the same boy, offences that allegedly took place between 1972 and 1977 in Battersea, Twyford and Berkhamsted in Hertfordshire, two counts of raping an 18-year-old woman between 1976 and 1977 in Canterbury and Berkhamsted, a further charge of raping another 18-year-old woman between December 1972 and April 1973 at Stockwell in South London, one count of indecently assaulting a 23-year-old man in Stockwell, a further charge of raping a 16-year-old woman in Tring, Hertfordshire, and of indecently assaulting an underage boy in Washington, alleged offences which took place in the 1970s. In addition, 
Cook was charged with buggery of a 15-year-old boy between January and December 1981 in Hatfield in Hertfordshire. Cook was then remanded in custody to Bullingdon Prison in Oxfordshire and as he left the dock, a middle-aged woman screamed abuse at him from the public gallery. In April of that year, he appeared back before Newbury Magistrates where he was committed for trial at Reading Crown Court. Now over time, the venue was changed to Manchester as the question was posed, with such a high-profile figure and such wide-ranging offences, where was Cook likely to get a fair and neutral trial? And so Manchester it was decided on. When he appeared there before presiding Mr Justice David Poole on October the 5th, 1999, surprisingly, Cook pleaded guilty to a total of 10 sex attacks, those in connection with the two brothers he'd lodged with in Cumbria in the 1970s, admitting five counts of indecent assault and five counts of buggery though he denied the further counts of rape, indecent assault and one of buggery dating back to 1981, charges which were left to lay on file. An old adversary, Sir John Nutting QC, prosecuting, told the court that the two victims were both now married with children of their own and had been teenagers when they were assaulted by Cook, one over a four-year period and the other over a two-year period. Mr Nutting described how for part of their formative years the children were brought up in children's homes and how Cook first came into contact with the brothers and their family in 1970 when the youngest victim was just 10 and the brothers were at the time living in a home because of an abusive father and their mother's inability to cope with their large family. He continued, Their family must rank as one of the most disadvantaged families in this country during that period of time. There were nine of them in all. They suffered a miserable childhood. Their mother was an inadequate woman who was largely incapable of coping with the responsibility of parenthood. The father was a drunken, violent bully who used to beat his daughters with a belt and who ran off with his teenage stepdaughter when the youngest of the victims in this case was only seven years of age. The children had little education in the relevant years and led an itinerant life and were living for significant periods in a caravan. The younger brother was regularly assaulted by Cook between 1973 and 1978 in Oxfordshire, London, Kent, Hertfordshire and Tyne and Weir. Cook, who said this boy was his favourite, assaulted him up to three times a week. Referring to oral sex and masturbation, Cook told police, He gave me entertainment and I returned the compliment. Cook also told police he buggered the boy within days of the first instance of sexual intimacy between the two. He corrupted him until he believed it accepted practice. Cook systematically embarked on a course of sexual abuse, so frequent and so manipulative that the boys came to regard a sexual relationship as the natural relationship between adult and child. Assault and buggery were the stock in trade of the defendant's relationship with them. He claimed to police in interviews this year that, because he himself had suffered abuse as a young boy, he considered that when he abused the two boys, he'd behaved naturally. The court heard how the younger victim had told the police earlier that year. It was like he was on autopilot 
and I would just go along with it. The boy's brother was abused by Cook between 1972 and 1976, and threatened with violence if he didn't comply. Cook buggered him in a car at a fairground, and on another occasion, the two children were taken by Cook and another man to an allotment shed, where they were forced to take part in sexual acts. Mr Nutton added that Cook had admitted in police interviews in January that year that what he'd done to the children was wrong, saying, He said he had come to recognise and understand in the last decade that his behaviour towards them was something to be ashamed of. Cook had said, When I was abused myself, it's hard to talk about it, but it's three times harder to own up to it. I've come to know what I did to these young people, and it was wrong. Before that, I just regarded it as just natural human nature. I wish to Christ I hadn't abused them. I feel dirty and ashamed. My arse, she did. Can you not just smell the bullshit and feel the evil pouring out there? Cook regretted nothing, not a single thing for a second. In fact, probably reliving the abuse that he'd committed was almost certainly a turn-on for him. David Bright, by then just retired, was in court to see Cook plead guilty to 10 of the offences out of the 18 specimen charges he was facing. I say specimen because the scope of his offending amounted to at least one offence a day, almost day after day, over a number of years against youngsters who had simply been too scared to say anything. And Cook, in the dock, had grinned at David Bright. He'd grinned at him. Words fail, don't they? They just fail. Mr Justice Poole then adjourned the case for pre-sentencing medical and psychiatric reports, unusually allowing unlimited time for them to be produced and remanded Cook in further custody, pending sentence. On the 17th of December 1999, Cook stood in the dock, this time at Wolverhampton Crown Court, where Mr Justice Poole was sitting, as in mitigation, his barrister, Timothy Castle Casey, told the court that his client was now 71, a lonely man who received no prison visitors, and that in the past few years, Cook had had three mini-strokes and a heart attack, as well as suffering a hiatus hernia and back problems. So, the day he was doing press-ups and shadowboxing David Bright only the previous year must have been one of his good days, eh? It was all a complete shamble of bollocks, this was. Cook could produce a limp when he wanted to, to try and elicit sympathy, or he could develop a chesty cough during interviews as a delaying strategy to give himself thinking time in any responses. The court then heard extracts from the reports of three experts, Dr Andrew Bates, a forensic criminal psychologist, Julia Miles from the probation service, and Dr Simon Beer, a psychiatrist at Fairmile Hospital in Cholesley, which were all unanimous that despite his advancing years, Cook continued to pose a serious risk to young boys and adolescents. Mr Castle attacked these reports as mistaken and unjust, arguing Cook was a man of little education or culture and who did not understand the tests he was being put through. He told the court that Cook genuinely believed there was nothing morally wrong in sex between adults and children 
and urged Mr Justice Poole not to get carried away or influenced by Cook's reputation in passing sentence, saying, Mr Cook has been accused in the press and on television of the most horrific crimes one can imagine. He has not been tried for these crimes. He's never been charged with them. These allegations have been whipped up by certain ex-police officers who should have known better. The result has been nothing short of a witch hunt against this man by the press and television. Yeah, I'm sorry, but fuck off. Sentencing Cook, Mr Justice Poole remarked that the case was aggravated by the fact that the two brothers had been groomed by Cook, saying, For a period of five to six years, you systematically abused both of these children. In each case, you had groomed them to an extent to come to regard your behaviour towards them that was anything but normal as normal behaviour. Referring to Dr Bates's report, he said, He's concerned you're proud of having controlling tendencies, indicating you have a passive significant compulsion to behave in a very angry and controlling manner. He's concerned, given any opportunity to do so in the future, you will indulge that desire for control as you have done in the past, the very extreme sexual control of children. Referring to Miss Miles' report, the judge said, You seek to justify your actions by laying blame on the children. At no time did you express any empathy for them. You remain for the time being a serious danger to children and young adults. There are wells of anger in you that make you particularly dangerous. Cook stood impassively in the dock as he was then sentenced to two terms of life imprisonment, as well as five 18-month and three four-year custodial sentences, all to run concurrently. Mr Justice Poole told Cook that he would not be considered for release until he had served at least five years, and only then, if the parole board was satisfied he was not a danger to the public, adding, The reports before me are unanimous that, Notwithstanding your advancing years, you remain for the time being, and will remain for an incalculable period, a serious danger to children. If you are released, you will be on licence for the rest of your life, and liable to return to prison at any time. Cook was then taken down to begin his sentence. He'd spent a total of 297 days since the late 1980s on parole and at large before being remanded back into custody, and thankfully, never touching another child again. Following the hearing, both brothers admitted to feeling hatred for the systematic campaign of abuse waged against them by Cook during their childhoods, the older brother saying, I feel that the treatment I suffered during my childhood and teenage years had caused me much suffering and mental anguish, and has destroyed a lot of my relationships. I will never be able to forgive Sidney Cook for what he did to my family. His younger brother added, When the judge said the word life, it made my day. I don't think he can have any complaints after what he did. We never want to see him released. The judge's description of him was very accurate. Following Cook's sentencing, then NSPCC director Jim Hardin said, the children who were abused by Sidney Cook suffered some of the vilest and cruelest sexual offences imaginable. 
he should never have been freed after serving his last sentence, and we sincerely hope he will never be given the opportunity to hurt another child again. The senior officer who'd investigated the claims that had brought Cook to court, Detective Superintendent Trevor Davis, said he was delighted by the sentence, adding, It is now a matter for the parole board and the Home Secretary, but if you listen to the reports in court, this man must be considered a danger, and the sentence reflects how long that danger must be considered for. I would expect him to be in prison for a very long time. I don't think his attitude will ever change. It was a view shared by many, with former Detective Superintendent David Bright saying, Cook is a very hard and resilient man. He's a very strong character, but he's an evil man. Anyone who does unspeakable things like he did to children is evil. There is nothing more precious than a child, and what he did was the most awful of crimes. No arguments there whatsoever. Now, Cook's minimum term before he could seek parole, a landmark which fell on December the 17th, 2004, came and went, but he was turned down for parole at that time, possibly because in 2001, the 73-year-old Cook had been accused of raping a fellow inmate in Whitemore Prison in Cambridgeshire, where he was being held in the man's one-bed cell. Cambridgeshire Police confirmed at the time in a statement that detectives were, I quote, investigating a complaint of indecent assault which is alleged to have happened at HMP Whitemore during September and October 2001. However, it's not reported that any further charges as a result of this complaint were brought against Cook. Whether he had or not, I would certainly not put it past him, for although a slight man, Cook had certainly carried some physical strength into his elderly years, developed and honed over a working life in the fairgrounds. And of course, he has the predilection to do such a thing, doesn't he? By 2009, the then 82-year-old Cook had been moved to Monster Mansion itself, Wakefield Prison in West Yorkshire and had reportedly become best friends there with the unnamed individual who has been deemed Britain's Fritzel. Calm your jets, for that someone we'll meet next series. Prison sources said that Cook and the individual, who, as I said, has never been publicly identified to spare his victims, his own children, have similar warped personalities, both being arrogant and totally unrepentant. Both he and Cook, who for their crimes were both hated and shunned by other inmates, were said to be inseparable on Wakefield's sea wing. Prison source said, Cook can't get around, so the Sheffield rapist has become his little helper, pushing him around the wing in his wheelchair. He takes him to all his medical appointments and helps him with his meals. Even in Wakefield, no one wants anything to do with the rapist after what he put his own children through, so Cook is the only friend he has. No one wants to know Cook either, but it seems he's found a chum at last. It's almost a perfect match, two sickos getting together to form some kind of twisted bond. They make quite a pair, and frankly, they're welcome to each other. They're the best of friends, but what a friendship. What a friendship indeed, and as I say, we shall meet this individual next series. In the years following this, Cook has remained at Monster Mansion and has since suffered another stroke, 
meaning he's been given a specially adapted bed in his cell with a mechanical mattress so he can be lowered and raised to help him get in and out of it. He also has an alarm in his cell in case of another stroke, a TV, a music system and tea making facilities. Yet, even his advanced age and infirmity, Cook has made no attempt at rehabilitation and has failed to complete any sex offender treatment programs. He arrogantly believes he is too old to change his ways, which he of course is now, and is still considered a threat to young prisoners, officials saying he is callous, controlling and domineering, and completely remorseless and refusing to accept responsibility for his crimes. How despised and dangerous he is, is reflected in the amount of times that he has applied for parole and been refused 10 consecutive separate times, the latest being in October 2021, where at 94 years old, Cook was still considered someone who should die behind bars. His parole has constantly been refused on the grounds that his behaviour whilst imprisoned has been mixed and has provoked concerns and even allegations over the years. He has also consistently been denied a move to an open prison. Now earlier this month, as I write and record this, it was reported that now 95-year-old Cook has launched an 11th bid for freedom. A spokesperson for the parole board said, The parole review has now been referred to the parole board by the Secretary of State for Justice, and is following standard processes. A hearing is expected to take place early next year. If Cook lives that long, of course. But this is the character of the individual. It almost seems like a game to him. It's like a, fuck you decency, I'm determined I'll beat justice and I'll die outside a prison. Although I'd actually wager that there's more chance of me agreeing with Just Stop Oil who as an aside have no idea how to beneficially protest and instead bring back a valid case I think for public flogging or stocks. Utter immature middle class twats whose loaded parents should disown them, leaving them with not a clue how to survive in the world. Now, bearing in mind that Sidney Cook is 95 years of age and surely must be Britain's oldest serving prisoner, The magnitude of his crimes has kept him inside where others of a younger age have been released, and the reason why can be best served up in two quotes. The first is from now-retired former Superintendent David Bright, who said, He is the Hannibal Lecter, he is an evil, evil man, but I really believe it should be before he breathes his last, and that will be his final thing for him to be interviewed about Mark and other children he may wish to speak about but he isn't likely to, not at all. He hasn't in the almost 33 years he has now spent inside, and now, even on his deathbed, shows no sign of remorse or repentance. What sums Cook up best for me is a quote by now-deceased former Salvation Army Lieutenant Colonel Derek Tribble following Cook's life sentences. And bearing in mind this was a pious man who said years later concerning Cook, who, remember, he'd been his observer in his police interviews. It is a great relief that he's back inside jail. I rest easier with the knowledge that he will never be able to interfere with children. I've met some nasty characters in my time, but Sidney Cook definitely is the most evil person I have ever come across. 
What he and his gang did to that poor lad was utterly nauseating and sickening. To hear him coldly talking about it as if it were an everyday occurrence was totally shocking. I will never forget the way he recounted the story without any feeling. It's the most evil thing I've ever heard. Before I met Cook, I never thought there was such a thing as evil. Now, I've seen and met it. What can you add to that? Sidney Cook, now 95 years old, remains in Wakefield Prison to this day. I am so consumed with this tale that I want to give my whole thoughts and feelings on those we've heard of in this part and the previous one, but I'll refrain from doing so here and save it for wrapping up come the aftermath part, and the majority of which will come from me directly, warts and all honesty and very little research needed. That part's been building up in me since I began researching Jason's story for the boy who loved coins, which seems a ways back right now, doesn't it? I'm very certain that you will have your own opinions on those you've heard of anyway. Now that we've left Oliver and Barrel who knows where, Cook almost certain to die in prison, and two of the other monsters, Smith and Bailey, long since dead, the air we breathe being that much cleaner now as a result, put them to the back of your mind, and next time around, I'll bring the focus back around to the boys that we've heard of, when it's the turn of their families, how they've gone on, developments with them, that kind of thing. I thank you once again so very kindly for staying with me through the Lost Boys tale. I know it may seem like a chore to some for going through so many lengthy parts to get to where we are now, but as I see it, these boys deserve nothing less than their stories being told in full, however full I've deemed to, and we certainly don't go half-arsed here on The Enthusiast. So expect certainly one more episode, because I've been working solid on the whole case for a couple of months now, fact-finding, and I still haven't really vented myself about it, for something that's horrified me and broken my heart countless times over. We shall get there though, and I invite you to please get in touch with your thoughts and feedback on any of the episodes that you've heard through The Lost Boys so far. You can do so in the Facebook thread that's up in the show's discussion group, or through any of the show's social media links. You know where to find me by now. So with that, I shall go and do just that right now. So until the next time, I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.